Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. 1 Samuel chapter 31, verses 1-7. through 7. This is the word of God. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Geboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul and the archers found him. And he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. Let's um, bow in prayer. Father, we just pause at the commencement of this Uh, service and we do pray that as we look into your holy word that we would be edified and built up and most of all that we would learn that we would take things away from this passage that would help us in our Christian experience this is a a passage that perhaps the only way to say it it's raw but we do pray that you would help us even as we endeavor to look at why it is here we ask this in the name of our Savior Amen. Please be seated. As you can see in the bulletin, the, uh, entitled, I've entitled today's message a very obvious title, Saul's Death on Mount Gilboa. And truly, this was a national calamity. Now, this second slide I'd like to look at, which is a photo, is an aerial view of Mount Gilboa. I wanted to remind you that the mountain... Gilboa really is a real place and an actual event in history. So it's important that we're able uh, to sense that. Now, Gilboa itself is not just a single peak. It's a mountain range. And that mountain range is some 8 to 10 miles long because it's a bit irregular. And it's 3 to 5 miles wide. And it rises about 1,700 feet above sea level. And where it's located is about 20 miles south of the Sea of Galilee. And um, this photo shows you from sort of standing toward the north end of Mount Goboa, you can see the fertile valley of Jezreel, which is the fields down below. And uh, today, this area is a really popular tourist spot in Israel. Uh, It's a major tourist attraction with hiking trails, lookouts, scenic views, and a very, very nice place. And this photo, it's hard to tell because we're looking at it from a, quite a high altitude. 
But certain areas of Mount Goboa are very rugged, especially to the north and to the east, and we're toward the north end here. We're looking here toward the Jordan River, toward the east. And the western flank, although it's more gradual, the eastern flank faced toward the Jordan, there is really rocky, very rugged terrain. Um, this is not like Colorado with the 14ers, but uh, it is certainly in terms of the flatness of this area, this is a big geological formation. So that's the setting in which we find ourselves in this particular passage. Now, the first point in your bulletin is disobedience leads to disaster. And I'd like to kind of take a little bit of a high-level view just for a second. Just bear with me. I'm not reviewing everybody else's sermons that have preceded me, but I wanted to um, give you a sense of what got us here. Disobedience leads to disaster. Let me just review some very quick things. Here's where disobedience manifested itself, and I only put some highlights here. There's other instances in the book of Samuel. What did Saul do after he became king? He tried to assume the office of a priest. Samuel expressly told him to wait for him at Gilgal, but Saul took matters into his own hands. Now, Saul was not from the tribe of Levi. He was not a Levite. He had no right to do this. He was the king, but he was not a priest, and he was not authorized to perform the offerings, and Samuel rebuked him for that disobedience. Second point, and you know this, repeated attempts to kill David. I think the first sign of jealousy toward David was when David brought down Goliath at Gath. And our brother Alex spoke to us on that passage, a good message. The women sang about David. Remember they said, David has slain his, or Saul has slain his thousands, but David is ten thousands. That sparked jealousy in Saul's heart. And Saul did a number of terrible things. You can imagine, I was thinking of the musicians up here this morning. Can you imagine if you're sitting there playing the viola and somebody hurls a spear at you and it impales itself on the wall right above your head? That's Saul. Jealousy just overtook him. So repeated attempts to kill David. And then another example of disobedience. He spared the Amalekite king, Agag. Remember? Saul had to do what, sorry, Samuel had to do what Saul didn't do. The Amalekites were a bad people. They fought with Israel way earlier on in history at Rephidim in Exodus 18 on the Sinai Peninsula. And the Lord says something very significant back then. Write this down in a book. I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek, Amalek from under heaven. Saul was commissioned to do that job. He didn't do it. He was disobedient. A rash foul. Success against the Philistines for the people of Israel, for the, for, the, for the warriors of Israel, but the army is hungry and faint. They haven't had anything to eat. And Saul forbids his army to eat any food while pursuing the fleeing Philistines. Jonathan didn't hear this because he's the one that started it in the first place. He snuck off with a couple of other people and put the Philistines to flight. So he was, deserved much credit in terms of the success. He had infiltrated behind enemy lines so Jonathan, he's starving. He's been working hard. 
He's had success. He sees honey in the forest. Of course he eats it. He's hungry. Why wouldn't you? Saul declares, Jonathan, you must die. You've broken the vow that I, that, that, that I made that none of this group, none of these warriors will partake of any food until we totally complete this job. He, he caused such an internal revolt that they almost killed Saul. They said, we're not going to put up with this. Jonathan's our hero. He's the one that's, that's caused us to have this mighty victory. And you've come up with this ridiculous edict. I'm just paraphrasing. <laughs> Saul's forced to back down. Now, that's, that's saying a lot. Saul, the king, was forced to back down because of the stupidity. And Saul was not thinking clearly or listening to what God was telling him. One of the worst things of all is murdering the innocent priests of Nob. Poor Ahimelech. He helps David, gives him the sword of Goliath, gives him food. And because of Saul's disobedience, his wickedness, he tells his own men to slay these priests because they helped his, his perceived enemy, his own son-in-law, David. This is a grievous sin. And I'm surprised that God Almighty didn't strike Saul dead right there because these men were highly regarded. Eighty-five priests gone. And then lastly, we heard last week from Brother Rick that he resorted finally to witchcraft when the Lord stopped speaking with him, consulted with the witchy woman of Endor. This was strictly forbidden by the Lord. No wonder Samuel pronounced much earlier to Saul, your kingdom shall not continue. So that's just a high-level flyover of a life of disobedience. So what can we learn from this? This is why I'm trying to highlight this at the commencement of this message. I want you to think about these points on the slide. Outward appearance can be deceiving. You remember when Saul was crowned, was selected and crowned? He was handsome. He was extremely good looking. He was head and shoulders above his peers. To all outward appearances, he would make a perfect king. We need to be careful. Sometimes we're so preoccupied with what we see, the Lord looks at the heart. Secondly, starting well doesn't guarantee a good finish. Because Saul, at the beginning, he was very careful to follow Samuel's instruction. He accomplished a military victory at Jabesh Gilead. He sacrificed peace offerings in the right way to the Lord and rejoiced as per Samuel's instructions. And Saul told him, fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart in 1 Samuel 12. How sad that Saul did not continue in this path, nor did he finish well. You know, it's a sobering thought. We should ask ourselves that question. How will we do? Is our heart right before God? Are we going to finish well? That's something we should really think about. The danger of earthly gain. This is a real snare. When Saul was instructed to specifically wipe out the Amalekites and not touch anything they had, don't take any of their sheep, any of the spoil of war, what did Saul do? He looked at it and said, but this is good stuff. I, I'm going to take that for myself. And then when Samuel came to him and said, what have you done? 
Imagine this. He states, I, I took the sheep and the oxen. Why did I take them? Because I wanted to sacrifice them to the Lord in Gilgal. That's ridiculous. So Brian needs a few extra funds for the building fund. So I go down and rob the bank and bring it to Brian and say, here we are. That's silliness. Samuel told him to obey is better than sacrifice. You know, the love of money and earthly gain has been the downfall of many who have initially seemed to want to follow the Lord, but they've fallen into the snare of chasing after worldly wealth and coveting other people's stuff. How sad that is. The other thing I wanted to point out here is continued disobedience dulls the conscience. Have you ever had a, like a cut on your hand or whatever? You notice that when the scar tissue grows back, there's, a, there's, there's an area of, that's not as sensitive as it used to be, especially if it's been stitched and then there's a fairly significant scar. You'll find that there's less sensitivity there than what there was before. So Saul, with his repeated sin, he ends up getting into this situation where his heart became hardened. That's what sin does. The conscience becomes seared in 1 Timothy 4 or desensitized. And like scar tissue, it's very numb and without feeling. That's the only way I can explain Saul standing there and watching a heathen man slaughter 85 priests. Talk about a seared conscience. That's a dreadful thing. And then hate and jealousy prevent rational thinking. Uh, ben Lewis gave us a, a good sermon. I think it was chapter 11. He's, one of his bullets in the bulletin was, Saul was consumed by hate. And I, I thought he put it well. He became absolutely irrational in his desire to eliminate David as a threat. Even after promising his own son Jonathan that he would no longer pursue David, he broke that promise. And in no time, he was after him again. Even when David spared his life and Saul admitted he was wrong, Saul said, behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. Saul still went after him. Hate and jealousy totally clouds the mind and makes for very poor decisions. And then lastly, the lack of repentance leads to disaster. How important it is to truly repent. Acknowledge that we are sinners and on the wrong track. We need repentance. We need the new birth. We need a changed heart. Saul's heart wasn't changed. His was a life of self-will and disobedience. And I would like to point out that the lack of repentance in your life, if you're not a Christian, will lead to eternal disaster. We need to repent and accept the gospel. There's a verse that I, of, that I often heard growing up during evangelical services, which I had, I've never forgotten. Proverbs 29 and 1. He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. In other words, if you continue in a life of self-will and rebellion against God, Refuse to acknowledge his grace and love in the giving of a son to die for you, spurning that offer of love and hardening yourself. 
it's a great possibility that you will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. We need to have our hearts changed. And that's what's wrong with Saul. And that brings us to this particular chapter. So let's go to the tragedy on Mount Gobo, which is the second point. You'll notice that the pictorial I showed you of the mountain shows the Israelite camp was at a spring at the base of Mount Gobo, but actually the battle started, the first engagement of the two armies occurred in the Jezreel Valley, just a little northwest of Mount Gobo on those flat plains that we showed you. And the level terrain of the valley would have allowed the Philistines to use their chariots. They had chariots, and since Saul's troops had no chariots, this gave the Philistines a, a, a really significant advantage. And in the ensuing battle, and the Israelites began to lose and to flee, Saul's men withdrew to the higher ground of Mount Goboa. And you can understand the Philistine chariots can't ascend that slope. So they thought, well, we'll have a bit of an advantage. But then the Philistines changed tactics and they switch to deploying contingents of archers. You can just see this in your mind, right? They were the ideal weapon to use against a fleeing army. And the arrows of these contingents of archers took a heavy, heavy toll on the Israelite forces. No doubt there was a nucleus of elite troops that were trying to guard Saul's family, his sons, and Saul himself. But eventually, these men are getting picked off one by one by the accuracy of the archers. And finally, Saul would have seen that his own sons are falling in death. And surely he would have known the anticipation of impending doom. As he heard from the medium at Endor, and from what Samuel had said to him, that by tomorrow you will be with me. This must have been a dreadful thing to experience. And then when he saw his son's fall, Saul would have known that this prophecy was beginning to be fulfilled. Now, there are three sons slain here, and, and uh, Ray read the, the names to us. Um, Jonathan and the other two, which we won't go over. There's a fourth son. His name is Ishbael or Ishbosheth. We're going to hear more about him, so stay tuned because this guy is going to feature in the future. So Saul's fourth son, this guy, was not there likely because he wasn't of military age. So Saul's critically wounded by the archers. He must have realized that the battle was lost. He's dying, no, no doubt, from internal injuries, the loss of blood. Now, this is a big surprise. In a surprise move, Saul wants his armor bearer to finish him off. In other words, assisted suicide. Saul, feeling his life ebbing away, deliberately falls on the tip of his sword and dies immediately. His armor bearer follows, and they're both gone. And so Saul falls down on the tip of his own sword on Mount Goboa. None of the suicides in the Bible are good. None of them. There's four in the Old Testament. There's one in the New we don't have time to go over them, and I'm not going to get into a divergence on suicide. That's, there's no commentary in this passage on the precise motivation, although I think it's pretty clear 
Saul did not want to be abused in life by these heathen, what he considered heathen people that would abuse him and probably torture him before killing him. And so Saul decides to end it early. It didn't make any difference. He was going to die anyway. It was just a question of time. So the battle is lost. So let's read on for a few verses now in 1 Samuel 31 from where Ray left off. Verse 8. It says, The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen in Mount Goboah. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Astaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bashan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bashan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. This is pretty rough. What Paul feared prior to death happened after death. They desecrated his body. They wanted to humiliate the Israelites. They wanted to show that their gods were superior to Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so what do they do? They decapitate his lifeless body. And if you look at the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles, you will find that Saul's head was placed in the temple of Dagon. The temple of Dagon was probably also located in the village of Bethshion. I thought, oh, that's really interesting. Dagon. I've heard of Dagon before. Earlier, the ark had been captured by the Philistines and brought into the house of Dagon for Samuel 5. Remember the statue of Dagon? It fell down once, and then it fell down again, but the next time it fell down, the head was severed. And Dagon was decapitated, sort of figuratively speaking, by the Lord. And he'd fallen face down before the ark. Now the tables are turned. And the Philistines show their contempt for the God of Israel and his anointed king by decapitating Saul. What a humiliation. And then as if to add insult to injury, they took the bodies of the sons and Saul and hung them up on the wall of Bashan so that anybody going by would say, this is what we've accomplished. And isn't this great? We have a total, complete victory. Desecration in death. If we go to the next slide, it's a view, a photograph, further up, an aerial photo, further up Mount Goboa, looking directly east in that little faint blue line. I'm not sure if you can see it in the picture. It looks like the horizon. That's the Jordan River. And that village you kind of see in the distance uh, looks like a, uh, not clear at all, but at the north end of Mount Goboa, you can see Bashan. It's that close. And it's in the valley lying east toward the Jordan River. So that's where Saul's body was taken. And along with his three sons. There is a bit of a bright spot. Uh, Maybe I could just say it this way. There's kind of like a tender note in this really raw chapter. And that is in verses 11 to 13 that we've read. The residents of Jabesh Gilead heard how the Philistines had abused Saul's corpse. 
some of their most uh, valiant warriors, their strong and daring guys, they took an all-night trek to Bashan because they're on the other side of the Jordan. Jabesh Gilead's on the other side of the Jordan. And they removed the bodies from the wall, wrapped them up, and took them back to Jabesh Gilead. They had a lot of stamina for Jabesh Gilead was, was about 10 miles south east of Bashan, a round trip of 20 miles, and they're running through territory which has now been occupied by an invading army. So they had courage. There was a great deal of risk in such a bold stroke. But you say to yourself, why did they do this? You know why? Because they had memories. They had memories. Jabesh Gilead had never forgotten when they were threatened by another evil guy, Nahash the Ammonite, he threatened them severely and said, I'm going to take over this countryside. And here's the deal. If you guys have to agree that I'm over all this, but the way I'm going to humiliate you people is I'm going to take all the men, all the warriors, and I'm going to gouge out your right eye. What a mutilating, disgusting thing. And when he threatened Jabesh Gilead in this ridiculous and vile way, Saul, in the power of the spirit, was incensed. And he marched to the rescue, even during the night. And Saul's reign began with a successful deliverance of the men of Jabesh Gilead. They were smart. They played for time. They said, give us a day. Give us a couple days to think this over. Meanwhile, Saul was advancing. And Saul, with his, with his men, completely routed the Ammonites and, and really wrought a great victory. But they remembered that Saul at that time was their savior, and they remained grateful. And proper burial and burial, or sorry, proper burial and fasting and other things associated with mourning were totally in order. So it was a debt of gratitude. Think about it this way. Paying it couldn't reverse Gilboa. I get the sense after reading this that something at least was right in this whole mess. Gratitude carries its own weight, whether it changes anything or not. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. The women who kept watch at Jesus' crucifixion couldn't do anything, but they were there. When they watched him being placed in the tomb, they couldn't do anything, but they saw when they took spices to anoint his body, they had no idea how they could do it, but they went. Love offers the kindness it can, and it doesn't forget the king, even in death. So they mourned for the lost king and for his family. Now let's move to this opening chapter of 2 Samuel, and we'll just read the first 16 verses very quickly. 2 Samuel 1, verse 1, After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziglag, and on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell on the ground and paid homage. And David said to him, what do you, Where do you come from? And he said, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people are fallen or dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? 
And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Goboa, and there was Saul leaning on a spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, and I said, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and let my life still, yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner and a Malachite. David said to him, How is it that you were not afraid to put at your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood is on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Right away, I'm sure your antenna's up. This doesn't match 1 Samuel 31. There's something strange about this. Now, it's a long way from Mount Goboa to Ziglag, 80 miles. By road, is over 100. So David is a long way, and he's had that success against the Amalekites that took his two wives and burned Ziglag. But when this Amalekite comes with the story, David would have recognized the armlet and the crown immediately. They were the royal insignia. There was no mistaking them. This story does not match what has been told us in 1 Samuel 31. And in doing some extensive research uh, with some help from Rick, who had given me an enormous amount of material, which I really appreciated, some, there's a lot, of, a lot of work goes into trying to reconcile these two accounts. doesn't make any sense to me. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think it's possible to reconcile, and there's too many differences. I think it's highly likely that the Amalekite embellished the story to impress David. And David takes them at face value. Remember, David has no other way of knowing what's really happened. David doesn't have the information we have. So he takes them at face value, assumes his report is true, says, were you not afraid to lift your hand against the Lord's anointed? And he meets his own end because he had no respect for the anointed king. Very interesting, but the Amalekites had a history of harassing God's people. And I've mentioned this in the earlier comment, earlier in their history. Remember Agag, the Amalite that I, the Amalekite? He was a guy that thought the bitterness of death is past, but Samuel hewed him to pieces before the Lord because he was destined to destruction. And then Agag had a descendant. You knew who that was? Haman the Agagite, who was determined to wipe out Esther and the Jews at a later period in history. These people have a way of showing up at the worst possible times, opportunists seeking power and place, and yet... God sees to it that his will is accomplished. 
David reacts quickly to the death in the death penalty for this Amalekite. I could say a lot more about this, but I'm going to move on quickly. What can we learn from this? Respect for those whom God has chosen and then set apart for specific service. We must not take matters into our own hands. Let God's timetable work out. And the importance of integrity. Making things up is a really bad idea, especially if it's for the purpose of self-promotion. And that appears to be what happened with the Amalekite in this story. And so we see that we need to have integrity in everything that we do and say so that the Lord is honored. Now, I'd like to spend the remaining time uh, on this very interesting lament that David has for Saul and Jonathan. And so let's just read it very quickly, and then I'll make some comments on it. David's lament for Saul and Jonathan, verse 17. And David lamented with this lament over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasser. He said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ascalon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. Ye mountains of Gilboa, let there be no rain or dew upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life, And in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Ye daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. David laments this lament over Saul and Jonathan. He, pro- he, pro- he really produced something that we could perhaps say is an expression of thoughtful grief. It's a conscious, reflective expression of grief that can be put down in a written form. Um, a lament differs from informal or perhaps spontaneous outbursts of grief, which are fine and normal and cathartic, certainly in terms of helping us. A lament is no less sorrowful or sincere than that, but it's a vehicle for the mind as well as for the emotions. And as I've tried to put on here, someone has said a lament is an expression of thoughtful grief. The intensity of one's emotions unite with the discipline of the mind to produce, if you like, sort of a structured sorrow, an authorized version of distress. Maybe we could say coherent agony. It's carefully honed and crafted in this beautiful Hebrew poem. David wanted this piece of poetry remembered and taught to the men of Judah. Very smart move. It was also recorded in the book of Jasher, which has since been lost. It seems to be a scroll that recorded great heroic exploits of the Israelites. 
and little is known of this scroll, and it's been lost completely. But this lament was written in that scroll as well as being recorded in our Bible. David wanted this lament taught. Why? Because sadness packs a punch that frivolity can never muster. It stirs us to our, the core of our beings and causes us to think about God, about our own mortality, and about the end of life. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of everyone, and the living will lay it to heart. When Queen Elizabeth II passed away, one of the, at the committal service in St. George's Chapel in Windsor, there was a bagpiper that played the funeral lament. And it's unfortunate, but the words have been lost to the lament, the words of ancient history. It's called Flowers of the Forest. But that was very moving. That lament was played, and as the bagpiper left the cathedral and walked slowly away, the sounds began to ebb away as that lament was played. And certainly you can see the sense of why writing these things down and playing them to music is so powerful. Now, I just want to make a few comments about this. Um, Hebrew poetry is interesting. It's not like English poetry where you have rhymes and just pick up clever words to make things sound good. Really, there's a lot of parallelism in this piece of poetry. And I'll just give you a couple of examples. For example, the second phrase typically amplifies and intensifies the first phrase. So, for example, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places, how the mighty have fallen. Mighty corresponds to glory, fallen corresponds to slain. And so you see sort of an escalation of the thought. And that happens again and again in this piece of poetry. Oh, how are the mighty are fallen. It, over, it seems to be the overriding theme. It's three times in this piece of poetry. Oh, how the mighty are fallen. He who had so much potential. Oh, how are the mighty fallen and given ammunition to the enemy. Here the lament extols the battle competency of Saul and Jonathan. Um, very interesting things here. You notice it says, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. You say, well, what's that mean? Shields in those days were made out of leather, real heavy leather, and they were hard to pierce through. And what they would do is they'd clean these, these uh, shields off and they would oil them with oil so they were supple and you know, didn't get all stiff. That's what that means. His shield was defiled. It fell into the ground and dirt, and it wasn't anointed with oil. Part of the po poetry of this, uh, mighty, uh, of this great uh, expression of grief. These two men, Saul and Jonathan, swifter than eagles, stronger than lions, Caution to avoid spreading news to the enemy is also highlighted here. Um, tell it not in Gath. This is kind of a wishful lament, but, but David knows full well. They're going to just rejoice, and they're going to spread it all around. But he's saying what a dreadful thing it is that this would be uh, celebrated in a heathen land. A curse was pronounced on Mount Goboa. David wants the sight of this bitter humiliation 
to be cursed, no dew, no rain, no fields of grain on the gentle western slopes, and a call to national mourning. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul. But then in verse 26, we have a really heartfelt uh, tribute to Jonathan. And I just want to say something here. Uh, uh, may surprise you. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. The idea of a treaty or a covenant brother. He says, Jonathan's love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Now, love in this context, and there's other verses that would support this with exactly the same word, means the covenant kind of love, political loyalty. Hebrew, the word for love is translated friendship in another similar context in Psalm 109. And so, I just want to say this right up front. It would be wrong. As soon as we read this, our antennas go up and we say, was there an inappropriate relationship between Saul and Jonathan? No. It would be wrong to think that. I, I think it's important to remember that the parameters of social relations that existed in ancient uh, society here in Israel were quite different than what we think of and how we filter things through our minds today. Marriages in ancient Israel took place primarily for the benefit of the tribe. They increased the size and the strength of the tribe through procreation and the prosperity between families getting together and daughters being given in marriage specifically to another family to tie them together formally. A man's wife was his partner in procreation and parenting, but not necessarily his best friend, confidant, or social peer. For David, Jonathan was a peer, friend, and confidant that no wife could ever have been in that society. And his untimely death left a gaping hole in David's soul. Another point I want to make. David's heterosexual orientation and relationships are well attested in the scriptures. In fact, we shall see that reemphasized in the matter of Bathsheba. So I don't want you to get the wrong idea because when we read this, when you read 1 Samuel 18, you may say, wait a minute, what is happening here? This is something, as Matthew Henry has said, I like what he said. He had reason to say that Jonathan's love to him was wonderful. Surely never was the like. For a man to love one he knew would take the crown off his head and it would be put on David's. And to be so faithful to his rival, this far surpassed the highest degree of conjugal affection and constancy. And in no way does this take away or diminish the wonderful love between a husband and wife. It should be this situation but it just shows in this expression of grief how strongly David feels about uh, his, the loss of his friend Jonathan. No one can find a better summary of Jonathan's attitude when he said in Horish, you will be king over Israel and I will be second to you. That statement, I will be second, it epitomizes Jonathan's whole approach to the kingdom, and David knows that he's lost a friend par excellence. Now, what can we learn? This is my last slide, so I shall summarize here in one minute. What can we learn? David's grief was expressed emotionally, touring his clothes, mourning, weeping, fasting, and intellectually in creating this beautiful lament. Medical experts tell us we shouldn't bottle up our grief. 
we should express it in whatever ways we can manifest itself. Instead of that, if we bottle it all up, we will suffer physically. Secondly, David's remarkable respect for the Lord's anointed king. Isn't it remarkable? It's just totally amazing that he says nothing about what he endured at the hands of Saul, who persecuted him and displayed no bitterness toward his mortal enemy. What grace, what restraint. He viewed him as God's anointed king, and who was he to question that choice? And then the loss of a true and faithful friend can be devastating. Someone said even the best of friends can't attend each other's funeral. No matter how close, death separates you both. So we need to grieve the ones we have lost and loved in this lifetime, sustain our connection to suffering, not to continuously sustain it, but to sustain our connection to love. History remembered is important. I was going to say a lot more about this, and it's unfortunate we're out of time. History remembered is important. In our society, we're trying to erase the memories of tons of people who have a lot to teach us. No one is perfect. Many of them have done things that we don't agree with, that we find troubling. But David recognizes it's important with all the faults and failures of Saul. And with the tremendous example of Jonathan's devotion for us to remember these people. And it's written there for our admonition and instruction. It's precisely through this accurate portrayal of history that we learn not to make these mistakes ourselves. I was going to talk about, it's too bad. I was going to talk about Hannah's song at the beginning, David's song in the middle, and at the end of this whole thing, David's song at the end of his life, looking back over a long history. Very instructive. Hannah's song is very prophetic if you read it. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge your kindness and grace to us. In this passage, we see true devotion. We see a man who recognized God's choice and pledged his allegiance to David. And Jonathan was remembered as a a true and faithful friend. Even as we look around in our lives, we have, some of us have friends like that and we so appreciate them. Help us to develop Christian relationships that would strengthen us individually and that we might serve the Lord and acknowledge that his will surpasses our will and puts us uh, into a place, a position of blessing. We just ask these, uh, your care over us. We give thanks for your word and ask that you would bless it. In the name of our Savior, amen.